Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, a look at the beginning of Roy Lichtenstein's career. My guests are Marshall N. Price and Elizabeth Finch, the co-curators of Roy Lichtenstein, History in the Making, 1948-60. The exhibition examines Lichtenstein's early work, with particular attention to Lichtenstein's synthesis of European modernism, American painting, especially history painting, and contemporary vernacular sources. The exhibition is at the Colby College Museum of Art through June 6th, For now, the museum is open only to current Colby students, faculty, and staff, but we hope that changes soon. The excellent exhibition catalog was published by Rizzoli Electa. IndieBound and Amazon offer it from about $33. From Colby in Waterville, Maine, the exhibition will travel to the Parish Art Museum in Watermill, New York, the Columbus Museum of Art, and the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University. Finch and Price are curators at Colby and at the Nasher, respectively. On the second segment, Candace Lynn from Visionary New England at the Decordova Sculpture Park and Museum in Lincoln, Massachusetts. But first, we'll start our look at Liechtenstein with Marshall Price after the break. Hi, everyone. I want to tell you about a free new app called Bloomberg Connects. It lets you access museums, galleries, and cultural spaces around the world anytime, anywhere. The app doesn't address just a single institution or one exhibition, but instead takes a portfolio approach by offering access to many different cultural institutions through a single download. On Bloomberg Connects, you can discover new cultural offerings, including some with which you might not be as familiar, creating exciting opportunities for you to find new ideas that address your interests across geographically disparate institutions. Bloomberg Connects currently has guides available for many institutions in New York and London, including the Frick Collection's temporary new home. Use the Bloomberg Connects app to learn about the Frick Madison, the Frick's temporary home in the Marcel Breuer Design Building at Madison Avenue and East 75th Street in New York. Learn how to visit, about individual artworks on view at Frick Madison, and take thematic tours through the galleries, all on Bloomberg Connects. Bloomberg Connects was created by Bloomberg Philanthropies to make arts and culture accessible to more people around the world. Download Bloomberg Connects today to access digital guides, to hear from artists, curators, and experts, and to get the stories behind exhibitions. You can download Bloomberg Connects on the Apple app and Google Play stores and from app.bloombergconnects.org slash modernartnotes. In the book Evicted, Matthew Desmond argues that eviction and homelessness are not only results of poverty, but may also cause it. To contribute to better understanding the close relationship between residential instability and poverty, the exhibition Barriers and Disparities, Housing in America at Sheldon Museum of Art explores selected moments in the history of inequitable access to housing in the United States. Works by Ansel Adams, John Biggers, Gertrude Casabir, Gordon Parks, Louis B. Sloan, and Paul Strand are featured for their potency in helping us to consider how housing can pose larger questions about systemic injustices in our society. For virtual galleries, learning guides, and information about online events, Visit SheldonArtMuseum.org. Explore an ancient trading center in Return to Palmyra, a new online exhibition from Getty. Discover rare photos and etchings of the city, including famous ruins that no longer exist, and learn how Palmyra has transformed over time. Read an interview with Palmyra's former director of antiquities and museums, Walid Khaled al-Sad, who grew up in this famous Syrian desert oasis where he can trace his lineage back five generations. Dive into Palmyra's history and culture from the prehistoric to modern period with art historian Joan Aruz. Return to Palmyra is a dual-language exhibition presented in both English and Arabic. Learn more and start exploring at getty.edu 
slash Palmyra. Welcome back. Marshall Price, thanks for joining me. You're welcome. Good to be here. Before we jump in, let me outline a quick bit of background Lichtenstein biography. So he does his undergrad at Ohio State. In 1943, he's drafted into the Army. The next year, the end of 44, his unit is sent to England and then into France and Belgium and the Ardennes as part of the Battle of the Bulge. Within four months of arriving in Europe, a, a very young Royal Lichtenstein is in Germany and, and the Allies win, win the war. So at this point, Lichtenstein is in Europe and he has some time and ability to poke around. Where does he go and what does he see? Well, he went to Paris for several days. He visited Louvre. And we know this because he wrote back home to his parents and mentioned a number of the things that he saw while he was over in Europe. So, you know, I mean, one of the interesting things is that Roy Lichtenstein grew up in New York, so he was familiar with European art already from going to the Metropolitan Museum, of course. But I think this gave him the opportunity to see some, some things that he probably knew of in reproduction, but you know, had not been able to see in person prior to that. So does he see Picasso and other fairly contemporary artists while he's in Europe? He he does. He sees Cezanne's, the card players, is one of the works that he mentions seeing. He also buys a number of books on modern art. So he's definitely looking at, at this material pretty early on. And I will say, too, that you know, even though he was in Ohio State as an undergrad just prior to the war and after the war, the curriculum at Ohio State was fairly progressive. And the students, I think, there were encouraged to look at, at modern uh, European art. How and when does Lichtenstein begin to work what he saw in Europe and, and material from those books into his paintings? I would say as soon as he comes back. But maybe it's manifested most clearly, I mean, certainly in our show, in this early body of pastels that were part of his MFA thesis show. They, I would say they most clearly show this, you know, sort of quasi-cubist influence. The the sort of three big influences at this point in, in Lichtenstein's work are Picasso, of course, there's a surrealist dimension vis-a-vis Miro and also Paul Clay, a sort of, you know, childlike, naive almost approach to image making, you know, a, a la Clay or, or someone like that. And maybe some Gorky, too. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure he was aware of what was going on, you know, in New York in the, in the 30s, in the 40s, uh, in early 50s. At the risk of being... <laughs> being the rude host who asks you to explain the joke. Tell me what we see in Lichtenstein's 1948 pastel, The Canon. I, I, sh- I should note that in his title, Lichtenstein spells the canon, C-A-N-N-O-N. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that's, that's a common thread throughout this early group of works, these pastels, is already we see this interest in archetypes. There are figures like woman knitting, the diver. There's also a technological dimension to some of these works, especially with the diver created, you know, the year that probably not coincidentally, the year that 
Jacques Cousteau used scuba gear to realize a major underwater excavation. And I think the canon, you know, perhaps is a result of his exposure to just witnessing the war firsthand and coming back and and seeing, you know, I'm sure seeing large armaments uh, up close. It's an abstracted work, a uh, very clearly gun-like object that almost appears to have this rotational axis in the middle of it, this large red rotational axis. And one, possibly two figures on the right-hand side uh, functioning the, the, the cannon. The barrel appears to be off the paper to the left, but it's, it's definitely some sort of armament device. Those two figures could, could be read as a mother and child, which is, of course, foundational to the European canon, C-A-N-O-N, and the whole thing could be read as Lichtenstein taking aim at the canon. <laughs> It very well could be. It's, you know, I mean, there is a lot of subversive types of, I think, messaging in, in a lot of this work that Beth and I discovered along the way in this project. So ad- advancing through the chronology of the show, in 1951, Lichtenstein becomes interested in both American history painting, which is a genre that no one much thinks about anymore, and in the American West. Why did each interest him, and how does he address each in the paintings he's making right after he finishes school? I think it's helpful if we kind of zoom out a little bit and look at the larger historical context of this moment, you know, in the late 1940s and early 1950s. And one of the things that we've articulated in in the show and in the catalog is that Roy Lichtenstein's interest in these subjects was, you know, at least in large part due to the fact that the U.S. was undergoing a kind of, you know, revivification, if you will, after World War II. And there was this great moment in which, beginning in the sort of 40s, I mean, it goes back even earlier, of course, but there was a a great deal of, of interest again in this mythical narrative of American exceptionalism. So like, for example, in 1951, you know, he paints a painting, two two versions of Washington crossing the Delaware based on, as you know, Tyler, the Emanuel Lloyd's history painting of the same name at the Metropolitan Museum. It's the centennial year of Lloyd's painting. So it's an opportunity for people to sort of revisit this, this mythical narrative of American exceptionalism. So I'm glad you you raised an example of a specific history painting that that Lichtenstein took on. How did he make it his own? And I guess I don't just mean formally, but but maybe ideologically too. Well, I mean, it's most easy for us to see the formal differences for sure. You know, the the works are rendered in a kind of quasi naive style that you know has I think sort of tentacles into folk art and children's art. But I think beyond that, one of the things that we discovered that was part and parcel of the fabric of Roy Lichtenstein from day one was his wonderful sense of humor and his sharp wit and satirical eye. And so I think, you know, in a work uh, or works like Washington Crossing the Delaware, He's really poking fun at 
this overarching myth of American history and American American exceptionalism. Um, I mean, we see it in a number of other works, not just the history paintings, but also, I suppose, in some sense, they are history, but some of the paintings of the Old West as, as well. Yeah, you know, before we get to those, you know, one of the things about the two Washington crossing, the Delawares, that jumps out to me, and I don't know if, if Lichtenstein had this in mind, and maybe maybe you could address that in a moment, is that here's Lichtenstein informed by cubism, and, and he's really flattening these paintings out, right? He's, he's eliminating pictorial space and depth, and may be making an argument that American history and the American historical st- story has also been, been flattened and perhaps oversimplified. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely possible. You know, I think the formal qualities of the painting come from his education at Ohio State and his study or his tutelage with Hoyt Sherman, who ran this experimental drawing studio at Ohio State known as the Flash Lab, where students were required to draw using strobe lights that would create an after image in their retinas. So I think for Lichtenstein and his classmates, you know, in college, how you drew was, let's say, more important than what you drew specifically. And Lichtenstein, I think, always kept politics at a bit of arm's length. But I've come to the conclusion that even though he was maybe not as outspoken as other artists, I I think he thought very carefully about these things. That's that's the conclusion that I've come to throughout the course of this project. We'll have images of both Washington, well, all three, Washington Crossing, the Delawares on manpodcast.com. It's interesting to look at them within the context of that strobe flash drawing technique and to kind of think that, and really, I think, see that. There, 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 there may be some memory of that within, within each painting. You mentioned a moment ago that in 1952 or so, so just the year after these Washingtons, that Lichtenstein makes a bunch of paintings of or at least referring to Native Americans. Why? What prompts that? And is there a critique here, either of Native Americans or maybe Lichtenstein's own source material? I think there are a couple things going on. Lichtenstein meets a young professor who's, who's very close in age to him, Roy Harvey Pierce, who at the time was working on a book on the U.S. and and indigenous populations in in North America, the formation of the the country and indigenous populations. And that was the first time that Lichtenstein was or learned about George Catlin, the well-known portraitist whose large collection of Native American portraits is now at the Renwick Gallery in, in Washington. And I think on some level, Lichtenstein was probably attracted to Native American design. But beyond that, and I mean, that's a very superficial kind of reading. I I do think beyond that, Lichtenstein realized or understood some of the horrors that the indigenous populations of, of North America had gone through and recognized that this narrative of manifest destiny and a sort of preordained 
notion that white European settlers were entitled to the land of this continent was a just a big lie. <laughs> I mean, to put it bluntly. And I think he was wanting to be critical of that through through some of these works. So a couple years on, in 1954 or so, so kind of halfway through the exhibition uh, chronologically, Lichtenstein is living in Cleveland, and he becomes interested in mechanical devices, the kind of widgets that Midwestern factories were, were belching out during the post-war boom years. He's certainly not the only American painter interested in such. For example, a few years on, Hedda Stern will also be interested in Midwestern manufactured widgets. What about these mechanical devices interest him, and what does he do with them? The mechanical devices are a bit of an enigma in the broader scope of Lichtenstein's oeuvre, I would, I would say. They last only for a very short period of time. But again, if you look at these, they're, they're almost all single objects. They're schematic diagrams of various devices, mechanical devices, and they are eerily reminiscent of some of the very first pop works. And so, you know, I think with each of these sort of circumscribed groups of pre-pop works, we can see in some way links to the later works, you know, foundational links to the later works. So, I mean, he only does a relatively small group of these mechanical paintings. He only exhibits, if I'm recalling correctly, just maybe two or three of them uh, publicly. But I think, you know, they're important. They're an important part of the the story of his searching, really, for for a more mature style. And, yeah, they reflect, you know, what was happening on a practical level in his life. He, one of the odd jobs that he had while he was in Cleveland was painting the faces of dials for machines. And so I think a lot of the the mechanical paintings reflect that. He had also taken a mechanical drawing class while he was at Ohio State. And in fact, his mentor at Ohio State, Hoyt Sherman, had himself gone to Ohio State a generation before and had started in the engineering department at Ohio State. And two Ohio State professors ended up publishing a, a very important engineering drafting manual and had employed the services of Hoyt Sherman to help them illustrate it. So even though these sort of come, you know, after Lichtenstein had left college and he moved out of Columbus, I think the imagery itself was 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 already quite familiar to him. And so it was a, a way for him to revisit it. Yeah. And these mechanical device or widget informed paintings, you can absolutely see Lichtenstein simplifying and reducing and making his planes of color simpler in ways that will definitely continue on and inform the pop works after 1960. What was the charge of the Light Brigade, and why does Lichtenstein become interested in it, or does he, depending on the charge of the Light Brigade we're talking about, in 1956? So, Right around 1956, he does a whole series of paintings that have to do with the West. 
He's already tackled Western subject matter and Native American subject matter prior to this. But 1956, he does a whole series of, of paintings of sort of Western archetypes, the outlaw, you know, the bad guy, the sheriff, what have you. And so Charge of the Light Brigade is a bit of an outlier in 1956. But I've come to the conclusion that it's also a kind of harbinger, one harbinger among several at this period of his interest in drawing on popular culture as it's manifested in in terms of like television and imagery. The Charge of the Light Brigade, of course, was a poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson after a battle in which British forces were sent into battle against Russia, uh, heavily underarmed during the Crimean War, and really immortalized in this poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson. If we fast forward into the 1930s, it was made into a movie, a Hollywood movie, that was released, but there was quite a bit of controversy after it was released because the the battle scene, the big battle scene, ended up killing several horses, and so there was a great outcry. The movie studio pulled pulled the film after it had been released, and it was not shown again until... It was shown on television in 1956. And so I have not found any concrete evidence that Lichtenstein saw this on television, but I think that the timing is too coincidental in terms of the creation of this this painting. Another 100th year anniversary, Crimean War ends in 1856, and that's about 100 years. You know, the, the, the date on Lichtenstein's painting, Charge of the Light Brigade, is circa 1956 seems like he might be enjoying these kind of overlapping uh i don't know coincidences isn't quite the right word but you know the way he can lay these things on top of each other maybe yeah i think when when historical anniversaries popped up on his radar screen he probably took notice and thought "Hmm, that's that's interesting at the end of the 1950s and thus at the end of your show which which runs into 1960 lichtenstein begins painting abstracted ribbons of color what got him there Lichtenstein had been marching toward abstraction beginning around 1957. And, you know, I think like many artists of his generation, he probably felt obligated on some level to at least engage with abstract expressionism. I mean, by 1957, you know, as we know, Abex was beginning to lose steam Certainly by 1959, it, it had prompting a, a, a crisis, uh, if you will, that was reproduced in, in a, a series of articles in Art News. So I think on some level, he began to paint abstractly because he felt he had to. And there is one interview in which he says, I, I made paintings that I thought were what art was supposed to look like at this time. But, you know, the the fascinating thing about these late works is that they they do several things. The first thing is they allow him to create a gesture, a mark with his hand that will go on to inform the rest of his work for the rest of his career. The brushstroke, the brushstroke shows up in every subsequent decade of Lichtenstein's work, sometimes in great numbers. 
The other thing that I would say it allowed him to do, whether this was deliberate or not, was that it was a kind of repudiation of abstract expressionism. For the previous generation, the brushstroke was such a subjective and personal marker of one's own identity. You know, we can think of Franz Klein paintings versus Clifford Still paintings versus, of course, Jackson Pollock paintings, all having this signature mark. What Lichtenstein did was he used a rag and he put multiple colors on this rag and dragged it across the canvas, effectively sort of depersonalizing, if you will, the, the mark making process or the brushstroke. So in a way, I see it as a kind of repudiation of this earlier generation. And of course, then, you know, not long after this, he immediately turns to this flat cartoonish style of work for which we know him. So it's, it's, a, it's a very important moment, turning point in his career and life. Marshall Price, thanks very much. You're welcome. And good to be here. Thanks, Tyler. And now we turn to your co-curator, Elizabeth Finch. Beth Finch, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much. In the catalog for this show, you write about the Midwest's influence on Lichtenstein. And you start with the earliest work in the exhibition, a drawing Roy Lichtenstein made in the very early 1940s. Um, what is the drawing of and how does it point to where Lichtenstein would go, you know, a couple decades before he got there? The Bunyan drawing um, by Lichtenstein, it's from 1940. It's a few years before the exhibition actually officially begins. We we begin the exhibition in 1948, around the time that Lichtenstein was finishing his master's degree on the other side of World War II. Um, but the, this particular drawing captures Lichtenstein looking at American popular culture, specifically uh, a folk hero, Paul Bunyan, um, perhaps casting himself in as that figure Bunyan. It's not your typical Bunyan, who was a much more generally uh, heavyset um, giant. Um, and this is a sort of live Bunyan. And it's also different than the Rockwell Kent Bunyan, a trade version of Bunyan stories that was written by Esther Shepard, a folklorist. And that Bunyan is the absolutely the archetype of the heavyset, uh, burly Bunyan. This seemed to be kind of almost like the Bunyan as as the idea man <laughs> that Lichtenstein became. So we, we thought it was an important one to have in the show, for sure. You know, Bunyan, of course, those stories really can be traced back historically to Maine, which is where the exhibition is opening. But the Bunyan stories were, Bunyan, the character, was picked up by the Red River Lumber Company, based then in Minnesota, to produce these pamphlets that became this sensation. They, they printed thousands of them, tens of thousands of them, with this character. So it was almost like an early comic book. And um, we can guess that Lichtenstein would have had those and at least would have known the stories. He himself was a camper once in Maine. So this folkloric character represented Western expansionism, was a trace as well to the World's Fair, where Bunyan appeared on the building of public health. So it 
it seemed like an important starting place for the exhibition. The Or catalog designer um, has a sense of humor because uh, Rockwell Kent's bunion is uh, an image of, of, of him as presented in the catalog next to an image of Roy Lichtenstein wearing um, a cream-colored sport coat and dark-colored slacks. <laughs> I, you know, I just, I, I, I laughed. Uh, <laughs> so in 1951, which is within, you know, the air quotes official dates of the show, three years in actually, uh, in 51, Lichtenstein and his wife, Isabel, uh, moved to Cleveland. And at the time, Cleveland, as you note in your essay, was uh, particularly resistant to avant-garde ideas uh, in both art and architecture. How did the city's built environment, and I guess particularly its armory, inform, inform Lichtenstein? That actually goes back to Columbus. So he was in Columbus. He went to OSU. He got both his BA and his MA there, Columbus had one of those late 19th century armories that is also reproduced in the, in the catalog. It was taken down in the late 1950s, and it's now the site of the Wexner Center. And in fact, the Peter Eisenman's design references this one tower that armory famously had but when Liechtenstein returned to Columbus to finish his his degree and to ultimately go on and get a master's, he would have seen this. And I think, you know, in the years after World War II was looking and thinking about processing his own experience in World War II in the midst of a U.S. in ascendancy after uh, after the war and would have seen this musty sign of, um, of might. And then when he moved on to Cleveland, right near where he lived was another armory. It still stands today. I think it was possibly an inspiration for these medievalizing works that he looked at. We know he also looked at the Bayou, a book on the Bayou Tapestry, and one of the important things about the show is the way it works with print culture. Um, and often, you know, Lichtenstein's sources were the, the most mainstream sources he could get on a major cultural landmark like the Bayou Tapestry. But I think these this mix from where he was as, as a New Yorker in, in Ohio, um, first in Columbus and then in Cleveland, as well as these other influences became a way of playing with imagery. So you have, for instance, the self-portrait as the knight that we borrowed from the Cleveland Museum, a few carved sculptures that he made using, we think, uh, cast-off uh, chair legs, and also some imagery in, in terms of print. So working between all three media and um, playing with this idea of an archetype of the king, the knight, the warrior in these years after World War II. During, during, during which he was a soldier, of course. Well, speaking of Ohio, the Lichtensteins, of course, were living in Ohio during what we now recognize as the post-World War II baby boom. How might uh, Lichtenstein have engaged with and been informed by the explosion of, of child-oriented culture, like books and toys and Lord knows whatever else? <laughs> right. Well, he um, he absolutely was was part of that culture. Both of his children were born during that period, uh, David and then 
Mitchell um, and his wife, Isabel, worked as an interior designer. And um, we think some of what we know, Lichtenstein's first collectors were her clients. If you look at his imagery, first, the kind of self-taught style of works like Washington Crossing the Delaware, of which he did two versions. He was looking at books on early artistic creativity that were produced in the post-war era that included children's drawings. So he relates to European modernists that he might have, you know, Paul Clay and so forth that he was looking at. So that there's that stylistic factor of an artist at the outset of his career thinking about his origins and in a characteristically playful, perhaps ironic way, picking up this self-taught childlike style really at the end of his art school, years and years of art school. So that's one factor. And then the imagery itself. So if we look at the pastels uh, like um, the diver, for instance, or there's the, the pilot, I believe, is from 1948. It's, it's imagery that evokes pilots and airplanes were a ubiquitous sight in the post-war era or during, the, during World War II, of course, as well. Um, but the, a figure like the diver relates to some of the things that were happening in terms of Jacques Cousteau. So there was uh, an awareness of that. He was fascinated as, as well at looking at imagery of battles, not bloody battles. They're more so, for instance, battle scene. It's a work from the Museum of Contemporary Art. He was looking like others. And um, I make a connection specifically to Alexander Girard who was based in the Midwest at that point and was creating toy-like characters that we all know now that are still still marketed. And some of that imagery, uh, particularly one in which there's a mother and child figure that are integrated into one, seems to come directly from perhaps Lichtenstein looking at Girard. We're not really sure, but he was definitely making a contribution as an artist to a fascination with children's toys at a moment of, you know, we can think of a sort of massed domesticity, you know, it was a great experiment in post-war build-out, right, in terms of the domestic sphere. I think we'll come back to that in a minute. Isabel uh, worked as an interior designer when she and Roy lived in Cleveland. How did Lichtenstein work as a kind of subcontractor to her? That's, that's, that's my word. I don't think that word is in your essay. Um, and how might we... Uh, think of that, I don't know, I don't want to call it work, but that that production or something. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm not suggesting these are like signed Roy Lichtensteins, but but they are interesting. Right, right. Well, there are, um, there are, there's a hi-fi cabinet top that was, that, that he created as, as a mosaic. There's a, there are a number of these mosaics that he created to um, adorn, to decorate uh, pieces of furniture that uh, she placed in in homes, and those are still around. He also apparently would occasionally hang curtains. We know from some of the interviews that that the Lichtenstein Foundation has has collected with early collectors of Lichtenstein, friends of Lichtenstein. He was part. You know, they were working together basically to cobble together a living. He also decorated 
the windows of the Halley's department store in Shaker Heights. One of the ways he made a living during this period was to support the work of his wife at that time. And, you know, she, as far as we know, had perhaps the more viable um, breadwinning role in that family um, during that period. You mentioned domesticity a moment ago. There is uh, really throughout kind of the peak uh, years of, of Lichtenstein's career, lots of references to to domesticity um, of, of one kind or another, often kind of psychologically loaded. But at the very end of Lichtenstein's life and career, he comes back to domesticity in a series of major and enduring sculptures. Um, what are are those works, and how how do you think they may have been informed by um, the time he spent in Ohio? Yeah, it's a great question. He was working on a series of houses um, at the end of his life. Um, we reproduced small house in in the exhibition. I think in Ohio, um, you know, this was one of the things when I went to do research on the show. I was struck by, um, you know, I'm originally from. The West Coast, and I grew up in a place called Santa Barbara, where you're surrounded by um, rich people. Spanish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, my I, my family moved out there as middle class Midwesterners, um, so that was for me part of my fascination with this with this topic was a curiosity about the Midwest and its relationship uh, to the to the West and to Western expansion, of which it's you know part my history. That wasn't something I, of course, wrote into the essay, but that was that was part of uh, my interest. But when I was in uh, in the Cleveland area, walking around and in the Shaker Heights area, I, you know, I would come across um, in, in one case specifically one of these, you know, Western Reserve houses. Um, and they look like the kind of house that it kid draws, you know, absolutely simple um, structure, cabin almost like, you know, I was uh, struck by, by that when I was there, you could really feel that. And I wondered, you know, when Lichtenstein was in, you know, as a New Yorker heading to Ohio, and being there, you know, in the lead up to World War II, and after that fascination with this place that is part of the Western Reserve, um, which, of course, was the first colony of a colony, right? It was it was Connecticut, the Connecticut Western Reserve. And you you really feel that, you know, that the historical markers are everywhere and present um, when you're in that area. So I think this sense of of home, of course, this is some a work like Small House is it is has many resonances that that period in his life. And you see it as well in terms of the pop or later works where Lichtenstein was looking at domestic interiors, that that very much remained part of his aesthetic vocabulary. And I think Ohio factors into that in some way. When I was doing research for this essay, I came across Another essay, it's by a historian, um, and I believe he's also would identify as a cultural geographer um, by the name of John Locke. And he wrote an essay called uh, Why the Midwest Matters. My response was, exactly. 
you know, that, that, that the Midwest mattered for, in my case, you know, I was thinking about Liechtenstein, that it mattered as a place where he could tap into mainstream American culture, which, of course, he would have encountered in New York City as well, but with fresh eyes. And and that 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 helped him to develop a natural inclination for satire, humor, being able to delve into significant aspects of American culture through popular sources. Beth Finch, thanks so much. Thank you. Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha, Nebraska presents Bemis Alumni Art Talks, virtual conversations with Bemis alumni and Rachel Adams, Bemis Chief Curator and Director of Programs. The series kicks off with 2020 Bemis Alumni Award winner Diani Whitehawk, a Lakota visual artist and independent curator based in Minneapolis, on February 9th at 7 p.m. Central Time. Whitehawk was a Bemis 2017-18 exhibiting artist in Monarchs, Brown and Native Contemporary Artists in the Path of the Butterfly. Whitehawk will speak about her practice, her take on abstraction through traditional Lakota techniques, and her multi-channel video work, Listen, which showcases indigenous women speaking their language in the specific region of its origin. RSVP to receive Zoom details at bemiscenter.org. This fall, Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2020, a version, in partnership with the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens. The fifth edition of the Biennial, which highlights artists working throughout greater Los Angeles, features new installations, videos, films, sculptures, performances, and paintings, many commissioned specifically for Made in L.A. The exhibition will show the 30 artists at both institutions, two versions that make up the whole. Made in L.A. 2020, a version, on view this fall at the Hammer and the Huntington. Find details and sign up for updates at hammer.ucla.edu and at huntington.org. Welcome back. Next up, Candace Lynn, who joins me to discuss her work on the occasion of Visionary New England at the Decordiva Sculpture Park and Museum in Lincoln, Massachusetts. The exhibition, which was curated by Sarah Montross, jumps off from New England's embrace of visionary and utopian cultures in the 19th and 20th centuries, think Brook Farm, Fruitlands, and experimental psychology, to look at how artists address some of the same ideas. Lynn's work examines trade routes and material histories as part of her investigation of colonialism, racism, and sexism. Her first solo show will open at the Walker Arts Center in Minneapolis this August, before traveling to Harvard's Carpenter Center for the Visual Arts in 2022. Candace Lynn, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. Thanks for having me. One of the things about your work that I think is so exciting is that you have an extraordinary breadth of address within individual projects. And I don't think I've ever done this in 480 whatever shows, but as a way of kind of pointing to that, I want to quote the second sentence from the press release to what I think was your last commercial dealership show at Francois Gebeli in L.A., And the press release noted that the work addressed, quote, subjects ranging from Chinese coolie labor in the Caribbean, James Baldwin's travels outside the United States, plants that heal and hurt, disciplinary masks used as medieval European public shaming devices and their formal similarity to slave torture devices, 
and John Searle's writings on artificial intelligence. It's almost hard to keep all that straight in my head as I read it. So as you address your practice in your in your studio, what holds such disparate things together? Yeah, that that exhibition pulled together a couple of different projects that I had been working on over the last couple of years. And they are all connected to me because they're maybe part of my larger research into thinking about world making and like the category of the human, like the John Searle text. It's not like I did a deep dive into linguistics. I, I more just was interested in his metaphor of the Chinese room as a definition of humanness versus artificial intelligence. And then my interest in plants is also my interest in how histories of slavery and indentured labor, how plants have been part of the reason for those systemic those systems and also the way that they have been enlisted as collaborators in resisting. So they seem like different topics, but they're related to my ongoing themes around race or global trade and colonialism and issues of identity and gender and sexuality. You mentioned systems. At the heart of your work, I think the connective tissue that holds it together is your address and to some extent reconstruction imagined reconstruction of systems. What was the gateway toward your being interested in systems and how systems are constructed and or work? Maybe my own ignorance is my gateway to being interested in systems, because I guess a lot of times people ask me, is your work, you know, it's research-based and historical. Is it intended to educate or like bring to light marginal histories and yes in part but a lot of it just stems from things I want to learn because it's not like I have some wisdom that I want to impart it's usually like I oh I'm reading something that I had no idea of that I almost feel like I should have or should be common knowledge and so it kind of leads me to to go down that route to figure out how things are connected and in that way figuring out a system around that history. The work kind of simultaneously plays on ground explored by Julie Maritou and Mark Dion, which is an unusual junction. <laughs> you mentioned invasive species a moment ago. Let's unpack that a little bit. What is an invasive species? And what about invasive species got you interested in them? I don't know if I was thinking about plants so much as invasive species. I'm really interested in histories of like plantation economies and how they relate to the current way we think about agriculture and farming. And so that often is connected to species that are not native to a place that becomes a colony that then is used to grow them. There's also a lot of weird and interesting languages around native versus invasive that relates to humans, human histories of migration and outsiderness. But I think, yeah, I think my interest in plants is more thinking about how they're entangled with these human histories that are really complicated. Because I think that even that definition of like, what is an invasive species is such a difficult question to, to answer. There's like a botany explanation and a science explanation and a social explanation of what that would be. But it's it brings up all these related, complicated issues related to to race, to migration, to science, and categorization. Invasive species are one way you have extended your interest in 
systems-driven or systems-fueled environments and their relationship to colonialism. Has your addresses as an artist started with colonialism at its core, or did that become an interest as you started researching other things that interested you? I would say no. My interest started with materials. I think my research into cochineal maybe was the first material, which cochineal is an insect that people make red pigment out of. And I think that actually led me to the the research that's maybe most heavily invested in kind of colonial histories of global trade. But a lot of times it, it comes more from a tactile or experiential way of relating to color or the natural world or elements in my practice. The installation at the Decord of La Charada, China, it's not red. There are purple elements there. Is there a relationship between cochineal and the colors you're using at the Decordova and earlier at the Hammer in 2018? No, but it is somewhat related. The color of the earth is a kind of red color of earth that comes from, you know, California clay and clay from the Caribbean that I smuggled back with me after a residency in the Dominican Republic. And in that exhibition, I was trying to grow plants that were used in kind of like global histories of trade alongside cochineal. And actually at the Hammer and Made in LA, there was a fly infestation. So it's interesting to think about like these histories of insects and plants that were used as commodities and then became like this big disruption. And Wait, they were like intentional or unintentional? Unintentional. <laughs> yeah. so, and then they, they were like, we have to fumigate your installation. And I was really worried about that the fumigation would kill these plant seeds. And some of the seeds I could never get again, because I had I had smuggled them back with me in my luggage, but I had to I had to allow them to do that. Speaking of La Trada, China, which is at the Decordova, could you, I guess, quickly describe it and then also maybe address how a project or a work like that changes or evolves between an initial presentation such as at the Hammer in Made in LA in 2018, as you noted, and what is now... two or or three years later, depending on how we count these things. Yeah. So La Trotta China was first at the hammer and it was envisioned by me as both like this kind of seedbed that has this silhouette of a kind of like a racist Chinese caricature that comes from this Cuban gambling game that was used in the Chinese community there that is called La Trotta China. That's where the title of the piece comes from. And I wanted to think about it in relationship to California and the same kind of indentured workers that were building the railroad and coming for the gold rush were often related physically or, you know, in time to the groups that were laboring in in Cuba and other parts of the Caribbean. And so I had created the installation at the Hammer as a kind of memorial in some sense. There was like these different altars that had my research materials, but also objects I made while thinking about this history. And the altars surrounded this this growing bed, the silhouette in it. And then when Sarah Montrose invited me to rethink the piece for her show in Massachusetts, I was really curious to think about how, I, I, I didn't know actually if it did at all relate in history to the New England trade. So I was curious to research 
stuff around like whether a lot of like the big names of New England wealthy families were tied to trade with China, both like porcelain and tea, but also opium. And returning to Concord, Massachusetts to research, which was the place I was born in, also made me think about my childhood a lot. I spent, my parents didn't let me watch television and they just gave me a lot of what they thought were like wholesome American books and European classics. So I actually spent a lot of my childhood rereading Little Women by Louisa May Alcott and actually that whole series. And I really identified with Joe, the Joe March, the the tomboy character. So I really wanted to do something related to her. And so I, I started by researching if there was any connection between her and her father's utopian school, Fruitlands, if there was any connection between like China trade or opium or those kinds of things in relationship to her history. And then I kind of expanded it out to look at other literary figures. But it was interesting because I actually didn't know that she she did take opium to deal with her illness from having a really high fever during her time as a nurse in the war. And I also visited her house, her family house there and they had talked about, they have like this kind of set narrative and they had talked about like her working to save money to buy things for the family. And I looked at the objects around the house and there was like this blue and white set of China building a narrative, speculating around those kinds of ways that the China trade was maybe present in the background of this time period and this writing that was happening at the time. I feel like I'm being very long winded in getting to my answer, but for the de Cordova, I wanted originally, it was supposed to be an outdoor sculpture installation. I wanted to build the remnants of like a home, both thinking about the footings of the home at Walden Pond of Thoreau's cabin. Which is which is quite near to Cordova. Yeah. And also thinking about this, these prefabricated homes that were shipped from China to California, which I read about in this book by Thomas Layton, where he talks about this shipwreck. I think it's called Voyage of the Frolic. And so I'd wanted to make this kind of like abandoned footing of a house made out of the same red clay and then have the altars that I had made for Made in LA scattered alongside that. But because of COVID, we had to move the installation indoors and scale it down. So that element of the house got left out. But audio text that I had written somewhat fictionally, but with some factual stuff, connecting Louisa May Alcott to this history is present playing in the space. Allow me to tie up a couple of historical ends. Salem and Boston were the major ports through which Asian and particularly Chinese goods entered the U.S. That's why the MFA Boston has such major Asian and particularly Chinese collections. And there is also I don't know, remnant is the wrong word, but there's a relationship or something between the moving of houses that you mentioned also in Massachusetts. The Salem has a house it brought over or was brought that was brought over from China, I don't know what, 90, 100, 110 years ago that visitors to the Peabody Essex can see as part of their visit to the Peabody Essex. Yeah, that was actually the Yin Yutang that fascinated me so much to discover that that was an exhibit there. And it's, it's a pretty ordinary house in the Chinese context. So it's, it was so fascinating to like see all the videos about like all the effort it took to bring it over and then reading the Thomas Layton book and realizing that this actually connected to this other history of 
you know, the shortage of wood in California during the gold rush and that these, these houses, these little small prefab houses had been being made and exported from China to California. That, that brought that piece together for me. Yeah. For a history nerd like me, the China, Asia, California, Massachusetts relationship that exists within your work is pretty fascinating because there are a lot of really thorny, impactful American histories that are a part of that, particularly in California. California, of course, among other things, the birthplace of the Chinese Exclusion Act in the late 1870s, enacted by Congress in 1882. I want to ask you about the way viewers physically engage with your work. And a lot of it, including, I think, for an installation that will open at the Walker this summer and next year at the Carpenter Center at Harvard, the viewer will traverse the environment you create, will literally move through it. Why is it important to you that a viewer exists within the space you've made rather than just looking at it from outside? Yeah, I think in the case of like the Beton Salon, Porticus, and Logan Center installation where the visitors are invited to piss and have that piss be used in various ways in the installation, there's an element of implicating and speaking to the visitor's role in these histories and in, in caretaking the artwork that continues to anim animate those histories. I think in terms of the other installations like La Tirada China, there's a desire to make a space of ritual or reflection for the viewer and myself. And then for the walker, it's more, I, I was like conceiving of it during COVID and I was like, I want to make, it was very optimistic. I was like, I want to make a post-COVID installation where it's all about touch and smell and laying together. And now I, I really hope that's going to be possible by the time it opens. Oh, that's really interesting. <laughs> I hadn't, I hadn't, it, uh, you know, I guess obviously it hadn't occurred to me that, and I obviously haven't yet <laughs> thought of the world that way again. <laughs> so yeah, hearing about an artist thinking about baking that into a work is optimistic in wonderful ways. I, yeah, I guess I thought by, for sure, by next summer, we'll be definitely over this. <laughs> a German-born American named Franz Boas was important to the construction of modern anthropology. Your work, you know, in some ways exists to shoot holes in modern anthropology. And I couldn't help but wonder if Boaz was interesting or important to you. So I did the 2009 Smithsonian Artist Research Fellowship, and a lot of my research actually didn't really come in with any good plan, but it, a lot of it ended up being about Franz Boas because I just found him to be such an interesting person. And I primarily was really interested in how a lot of the kind of ethical arguments around a broader idea of humanity that he was trying to work towards in, in anthropology led to, you know, he was really arguing for contextual displays of objects of other cultures that showed things not as within a because normally they were, it would be like, you know, cutting tools all next to each other. And they were kind of arranged in a typological way where they were progressing towards like the European white uh, instrument that was seen as like the end goal of that. And he was arguing a lot for showing these 
objects within their own culture's use and not in a kind of linear progression towards whiteness. And I thought that was really interesting, but that that those same contextual displays with mannequins in the case of the display he did for the Field Museum were also what led to the human exhibits at different world fairs. And for me, that was maybe the most fascinating part of like stuff I found around him. Also, like there's a, a lot of really bitchy like telegrams and letters between other anthropologists and, and scientists working at the time who just hated him because he was Jewish and working in a way to question this kind of white supremacist framing of anthropology. And that was like pretty fascinating to read in the in the archives. And and his students more so than any of his colleagues were non-white males. I mean, Ruth Benedict, Margaret Mead, uh, Zora Neale Hurston, I think. Finally, I want to ask a question about kind of your less spatially ambitious work, such as the work you do on paper, like The Hand of an Important Man, works that kind of join your ideas and research and influences to organic material, such as leaves, branches, that kind of stuff. And I wonder what informed how you construct those works, because for me, they very much look like botanical specimen drawers made smarter. <laughs> yeah, those those works were made in 2015, and I did want to kind of think about natural history tropes of how those kinds of materials are archived and displayed, but have the content be content that questioned ideas of naturalness and especially in terms of gender and sexuality, which is what was the focus of that show was kind of rethinking kinship, rethinking gender and ideas of reproduction through looking at nature. Other drawings, I feel like had different intentions behind them. Some were borrowing from ethnographic watercolors in their compositions and trying to draw scenes that never appeared in those watercolors um, that probably existed in some way, whether it's within the European imagination or not. And then recent drawings that I call like the plant tincture drawings are just drawings from my imagination that I make after taking a dose of the plant tincture that I've been making and researching. So I made one with opium poppies. I made one with tobacco. I made one with sugarcane. And for me, that's a way of like thinking about the physicality of materials and their presence in the act of art making and that that presence could be a possibility to access an archive or a history that doesn't exist and make it into an image. Yeah, and, and, and they're works, they're all works, all of those are works that address the construction of a discipline and then deconstruct it and question it. I think all of the works are, are ways of thinking about a visual archive and, and how you can revise it. They're like three different approaches maybe, right? Yeah, yeah. Candace Lynn, thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you, Tyler. It was fun to talk. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.